word of prayer, and then we'll read the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege that you have not only made us your people, but you've called us together to be one, to be one people, a a nation of priests unto you. We are the body of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ universal because of your grace. You have made us your children because of your grace. And our brothers and sisters around the world who are trusting in you as the day goes by, as we just sung about, many of them are are persecuted for the faith in ways that we might never feel and have not felt in this country. So we ask that you would strengthen your church across the globe, that you would keep them sound in the faith, protect them from false teachers, protect them from the fear of man when they are challenged challenged in being faithful, when governments or other people in, in power tell them not to be Christians, tell them not to worship Jesus Christ, and tell them not to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help them to stay faithful to that commission. And help us also in a much easier situation in many ways to to be faithful and not to allow there to be an unhealthy sense of ease in our minds and hearts, but to make the best use of time because the days are evil. Forgive us for this past week in, in ways that we could have been faithful to you and and shared the gospel and perhaps we shied away or we weren't looking for that opportunity. Forgive us for sins that we know we committed intentionally and other sins that we perhaps committed without realizing it because we're being ignorant. Help us to, to be faithful to you in private and in public in the ways that you've clearly laid out for us in your word. We ask for for strength in the families, strength in our homes to be the husbands and the wives and the parents that you've you've called us to be so that we can raise up children that come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and help us to to be witnesses through our families, through our, our jobs and through all our interactions to be witnesses to the goodness of God and to the glory of God seen through Jesus Christ. And we ask at this time that you would give wisdom to our leaders, Lord. You say to to pray for the the government officials. So at this time we would ask that you give wisdom to the current government, uh, to the governor, to, to continue to set up this country and to design the way that things work in such a way that brings flourishing and, and health and peace in this land. We ask that you'd give us men and women of vision and of integrity. Help them to to put policies that are a blessing and not a curse in place. We ask for forgiveness for them, that they would repent of any ways that they have been selfish in that area that you've called them to. And help them to remember most of all, that they are first and foremost, like all of us, accountable to you. You've given them that position to, to see flourishing, to see 
the protection and the, the health of this nation go forward. Not just for the years that they're in office, but for the years to come. So help them to honor you most of all. Those who don't know you, we pray that they would come to repentance and bear fruit in keeping with repentance as we heard last week. We need people who fear God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as we heard in our responsive reading, it is fools who deny the existence and the lordship of you. And so we want people who are wise and not foolish. So give wisdom from above to those in the the positions of government leadership and to all our civil servants. And we thank you for, for them and for the faithful service that many of them give. We ask that you would give them strength to fulfill their tasks and also for the, the medical staff and the police and the firemen, just protect them and, and ask that you would give them the resilience to do the kind of hard work that so many of them are faced with daily. So we thank you again for, for all of this and we ask this because you are a God who cares and you alone can move countries, entire nations in the right direction. And so we ask that you would protect us from ideologies that would bring curses upon this nation. And we we ask that you would keep at bay things like same-sex marriage and abortion and a whirlwind of other ungodly and evil laws from being put in place in this land for a long time so that future generations can grow up with a sound understanding of truth in these areas, a sound understanding and and a healthy lifestyle in a sense that is benefited by not having laws like that. And we ask that you keep us as a church and all the true churches in this island, that you keep all the true Christians in this island faithful, even when the laws of the land change in such a way that we are being called to deny these kinds of truths. Help us to respectfully, lovingly, but firmly and boldly stand for what is true. And now as we turn to your word, we ask that you'd remove all the distractions that could come our way out of our minds. Help us to let go of all that's come this week and that has come even in this morning to us and to stay focused on what it is that you would say to us. This is your word and you speak through it. And so I ask at this time, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through your word in such a way that you apply it, you open it up so that we can see wonderful things in it and apply it in all the different ways that each person hearing my voice needs you to apply it beyond what I can ever think of. Keep me faithful to your word. May the words of of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and all of our hearts be acceptable to you and glorifying to you. Help us to see Christ more clearly and to worship you, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because of it. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, see ya. Maybe a couple more people came in. We're in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 4. And last week we looked at chapter 3 and the baptism of, of Jesus. And I said that that event where Jesus was baptized was kind of like a 
public commissioning service or, or like an ordination service where we see the Father sending the, the Spirit down in a form that appears similar to a dove and anointing Him in a sense like prophets and priests and kings of old were anointed for their specific ministry. And so after Jesus was baptized, what we see in chapter 4, which we'll read in a moment, is Jesus moving after being told that this is my beloved son, after the people heard the Father's voice audibly say, this is my chosen servant, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, Jesus is then commissioned to begin his ministry. And so let's look at how Matthew unfolds for us, how that ministry begins. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were suffering, who were were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Let's pray once more. Father, we, we ask again that you would open your word to us now and shape us according to it. We thank you that you will do this according to your will. We ask in Jesus' name again. Amen. Well, as I said last week, we were looking at Jesus' public commissioning before he was sent into his, his ministries, his various different ministries. And so what we see unfolding from that point on, actually throughout the majority of the Gospel of Matthew, and in fact the majority of all the Gospels, is really the various different public ministries that Jesus came to fulfill. And so that's what I've entitled this sermon, The Ministries of the Messiah. And there's kind of a, a broad ministry, which, as I say, goes throughout the, the whole of Matthew, right up until the point of his crucifixion, which is the first point. And I've entitled it Active Obedience. It's a theological term that we're going to think about together today. So that's our first point, active obedience. Secondly, discipleship. And thirdly, miracles. Active obedience is really a theological term that kind of distinguishes the majority of Jesus' life on earth. In other words, it's, it's looking at all the various works that he carried out himself, as opposed to what some call passive obedience. When Jesus turned himself over willingly to be betrayed and crucified, the Bible says he was like a lamb that is silent before its shearers. If you picture a lamb, maybe you've seen this before, all the sheep are lined up and they're shorn, the the wool is cut. And they do make a little bit of noise, but they don't really fight too much, right? And then there's another way the Bible describes his ministry in that era. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. So he turns himself over, and some have called this passive obedience. But the irony in that phrase is that the greatest work of all time, which is actively done by the Father and by the evil Jews and the evil Romans and essentially by the world who crucified him and a good father whose work was taking place behind the scenes, what looks like a great defeat achieves victory in that passive work. But throughout, again, most of the the four Gospels, what we are looking at is his active obedience. And so if Jesus had just come down to this world and died on a cross, there would have been something lacking in the salvation work that he came to achieve on behalf of all who trust in him. Not because of his character or identity, but because we don't only need Jesus to die on our behalf. We need Jesus, in a sense, to also be a substitute to live on our behalf. He had to achieve a kind of righteousness that can only be achieved by Him. Without cheating, as a human, He has become flesh, He's become one of us. 
And now he's, a, he's about to begin this active obedience, this ministry. But notice what verse 1 shows us in chapter 4. Perhaps you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. One of the lines that Jesus goes on to teach in his Sermon on the Mount, in what we call the Lord's Prayer, is lead us not into temptation. We're taught not to be masochists, to not ask for temptation. But look at what verse 1 says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tested, to be tempted by the devil. Some translations say tested, but more accurately, it's tempted by the devil. And this is an important lesson for us to take from this text. Every time that we are tempted, it is the devil who tempts us. But, we spoke about this on Wednesday night. The devil is not an omnipresent being. Notice what this text tells us about the characters involved. Right up until about verse 10. We only see Jesus and the devil. The devil... Again, he's not omnipresent, meaning he cannot be in more than one place at a time. That is an attribute of God alone. However, the devil does not need, in our case, to be tempting us because we have become infected with his work since the beginning of time. And the the book of James tells us that we are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own sinful desires, our own flesh tempts us. That's why First John says that we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But Jesus did not possess that kind of nature. He possessed the kind of nature that Adam had before he became sinful. A truly human nature, yet sinless. And so what we see happening here in this temptation is massive. Is massive. And this is an, this is an overview in a sense, but Think of Job. Think of Job and his, his temptation. Think of what the devil put Job through. Each time God's people are tempted, God is testing them. The devil is tempting and God is testing. What Satan is trying to do at this point is to get Jesus to do what he got Adam and Eve to do in the beginning. Because if that happens then we are hopeless. And so Jesus here, in a sense, is going into combat mode with the great dragon, as Revelation puts it, with the devil. He's going into war with Satan. But notice how he goes into this from a transition where he's been publicly presented before people by the Father. In a sense, he's been glorified by the Father. This is my Son, who I'm well pleased with. And you would think after that, that Jesus would launch into ministry in a particular way that people would be observing him. But he goes for 40 days and 40 nights into private ministry between him fighting against the devil, him and Satan. And notice what Satan tries to get Jesus to do in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, he said, or sorry, rather, in verse Two. Verse 3. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What Satan is trying to do is the same thing that he did in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? 
did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? Which God did not say. So when he says to Jesus here, if you are, he's questioning the character of Christ. Jesus has just been publicly displayed as the Son of God. So Satan is saying, hmm, well if you are the Son of God, clearly you're hungry, clearly you have the power to turn these stones into bread. And he was trying to get Jesus at the very point of this ministry beginning to doubt God's plan, to doubt God's will for how this ministry was to go. He was led by the Spirit and then fasted and was, as, as the verses say, he was hungry, which is, again, showing his humanity to us. Any of us would be hungry long before then. He's saying, God can't really care God can't really be concerned with your well-being if you're hungry. But Jesus quotes scripture. Each time he says, it is written. It is written. And this shows us again, as Ephesians 6 says, that the, the, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. This is not to teach us the idea that just by quoting scripture, we can get out of situations. But this is Jesus showing that he's living by scripture. That he's embracing the truths of scripture as the source of his life. That's actually what he's saying there when he says in verse 4, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. After Jesus meets the woman by the well eventually, and his disciples come and say, Well, aren't you hungry? We got you food. He says, No, my food, my sustenance is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my food. And this is what Jesus is saying to Satan. And in quoting that, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, which was a reference that Moses made to the Israelites, reminding them about 40 years in the wilderness during the Exodus, when they had tested God. God had seen their lack of trust in Him, and because of that, they had to wait 40 years to enter the Promised Land. So right here, there's a huge parallel between Jesus and Israel. Remember in chapter 2 of Matthew that the angel came to, to Joseph and said, you need to flee from this place because Herod's trying to kill your son. And then after Herod died, it says that he was, he, he was led to come back out. And it says that this was all to fulfill the prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. And I pointed out that God often referred to the entire nation of Israel as His Son. That's how He often referred to them in the Old Testament. And so right here, there's a huge parallel. 40 days and 40 nights of temptation and testing by God. Temptation by the devil, testing by God. 40 days and 40 nights paralleled with 40 years of testing. And God says in Deuteronomy 8.3, I did this to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What this is showing us is that this one person in himself, Jesus Christ, is superior to an entire nation. The entire nation of Israel. He is the ultimate son of God. And it's also showing us that he's the ultimate Adam. He is the last Adam. Whereas Adam and Eve were in a lush garden with no impact of sin at all and one command to follow 
And they gave in to the, the, the temptations of Satan to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's plan, to doubt God's character. Look at the complete opposite of that. Here Jesus is, starving for 40 days and nights in the desert, in the wilderness. And the devil comes to him. And he cannot overcome him. But Jesus again is living by the word of God, by the spirit of God and his power. He overcomes where Adam and Eve failed. And so right here we see a few important things. I'll just mention one. I think I've mentioned one already. But we see the importance of our personal and private walk with God. Notice that there's no crowds But Jesus here is showing the devil, I came to do my Father's will. And this is a a rebuke, in a sense, to myself and to all of us. How many times have we thought, okay, I'll just kind of relax now. I'm in private. You know, I'm not in public. And I won't think, is this thing or is that, you know, is is this thing I want to eat or is this thing that I want to do or... I'll slack off a little bit. I won't think seriously about my devotion to the Lord. And that's all it takes. One second. But every second of Jesus' private life is defined in this term, active obedience. Constant. We just sung about it in, in uh, that, that song that Brother Ora likes to call it, This Is My Story. You know, Perfect submission. Perfect delight. Perfect submission. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Because He perfectly submits Himself privately and then publicly to the will of the Father. And we see this continuing on to the second point. His active obedience includes His discipleship. This was one of the ministries of the Messiah. Discipleship, which included teaching and preaching. So let's look at verse 12 again. Look at those Verses running down to 17. When Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. This was a turning point in history. Remember, John the Baptist had been sent to make the straight path for the Messiah. So when Jesus hears that his public ministry is decreasing, he understands that like like in a race when you have to pass the baton, He understands that God is sovereignly passing the baton for him to take from John and continue this kind of ministry. And he goes to a a place called Galilee. And look, look with me in verse 15. This is a fulfillment that the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 2 gives us land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles. So we see right here Jesus is doing his ministry in the midst of a people who are not just Jews. This is a light in the midst of a dark world that Jesus has come to shine. And how exactly does this light shine? Well, look at verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. You see, it's the same message that John the Baptist was preaching. The same exact message. A message of repentance. But Jesus, unlike John, did not need to symbolize 
this repentance with a baptism because he had come to give the Holy Spirit as we looked at last week. He actually is the one that the Spirit is commissioned by to enter and to baptize the life of believers. And so Jesus' ministry, I think you could say that the heart of his ministry is preaching. Is preaching and teaching. Jesus was a preacher and Jesus was a teacher. But Jesus didn't come to a building like we're at now and stand behind a pulpit. So for us to take the mantle of discipleship, what that should mean for us is that the heart of our ministry of the Great Commission, of making disciples, is actually preaching and teaching. And notice the way Jesus preached and and taught often was just amongst everyday life, sitting down over a meal. But he didn't do this on his own either. Right away, as soon as he begins to preach this message, and let me pause on this, repentance, we need to think about this again. The word repentance, metanoia, it means change of mind. It means that, 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 that we change our mind in regards to ourselves and how we stand before God and who God is and that Christ is the only way to God and that we receive this as the word of God. But that it's not just a change of mind that we then verbally say, oh, I, I think that this is true. But the reality that we have changed our mind and that we think that this is now true is that it changes our life. See, we often separate the, the mind and the heart, right? But when we read the Bible, we see that there's a direct connection between our mind, our thinking, our intellect even, and a connection between that and our heart. Not the, pump, not the, not the organ that's pumping blood, but the inner person. How we feel, our emotions, our affections, our will, our desires. Repentance is seeing an actual transformation that comes from the heart. So Jesus is calling Jews and Gentiles alike, and all of us who hear his word today, to repent, to believe the gospel. But notice the kind of people he chooses to help in this commission. Look with me again in verse 18 down to 22. He's walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two fishermen. And then he sees two more fishermen. And I think this should be encouraging for us. He didn't go to the temple and find the priests. He didn't look for the Sadducees. He didn't go to look for the the elites of society. In fact, he often looked for those who were considered as the most lowly people. He, He didn't look at family trees. He didn't look at prestige of any kind. In fact, when John the Baptist saw the most elites coming to him, he didn't do what so many people do nowadays. Oh, let's figure out and strategize how we can get the the Sadducees and the Pharisees on our team because then we can really have an impact for the gospel. No, he said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And many people might have thought, what are you doing, John? If we get them on our team will be more powerful. But God doesn't need our power. That's why He chooses the least likely to make His wisdom and His power and His glory known through our insufficiencies. Amen? Amen. 
And isn't that encouraging? He chooses fishermen. And look what he says. Come and follow me. Here's the order. Come follow me and I will make you. So many people. I'll tell you in the past few months. So many people. It's happened to me for years. But so many people we might invite to church. What is the first kind of thing you, you hear from them? Well, you know, I'm going to come. Um, let, me get, let me get a little shape up first, you know. Get, and my, I need to get some new pants. And, you know, and I just want to get this kind of, this area of my life kind of cleaned up. And then I go start coming to church, yeah. No, that's not the order. Come, follow me, and I will make you something you can't make yourself. That's what Jesus calls for. And we need to take into account when we hear things like that, maybe in the past and even the present, some of us or some people who've lived amongst us have caused people to feel the way that they're expressing. Maybe the people who say things like that feel like if they're not cleaned up, that they're not ready to be in a place like this. Or if they don't have on a, a full suit or a tie, that they won't be worthy. And that's a backwards thing. And, and we're going to be looking very often through this particular gospel at the traditions of men that Jesus rebukes, which accomplish nothing. And so we want to make sure that we're showing people the wonder of this Christ and making them able to hear this whether it's coming to a service like this or as we speak to them where we meet them this is a great gospel because when we go to the beginning of chapter 4 we see that the Savior has not only died but he has come and lived a sinless life that none of us can and some of us are confused about that some people who profess to be Christians think that they can somehow achieve a sinless life and if I ever was to meet and speak to them in person, or if they listen to this message, I would encourage them to go and die on a cross. But obviously, that's foolishness. Because only Jesus Christ can live a sinless life. That's why He came. Because none of us can. But the good news of the Gospel includes the fact that what Jesus was accomplishing in this active obedience was that once the Holy Spirit indwells you and you have this new heart, you, cannot, you, you are no longer mastered by sin. We cannot live perfectly, but we have access to strength from God to overcome, to be set free from sins. And so many of us know what that feels like. So many of us understand, at least in part, that there's only two categories in this life. Those who are enslaved and in bondage to sin, which was all of us by nature. And those who have been set free by the new birth. And now we fight against our flesh. We live this life of repentance and faith, where by God's grace, we're not perfectly um, overcoming, but we are gradually. It's like those charts. You see those, those um, what are they, line charts? It's kind of like this, you know. It's, it's not just a straight line up to heaven of perfect obedience. And maybe there's some big drops in this chart. But never a true Christian, never will you see a chart look like this. Straight to the ground and flat line. Because, I mean, you know what flat line means, right? 
That means you're dead. And spiritually speaking, we're all born dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But by God's grace, we've been made alive with Christ. And we have the power through His grace and His growth to continue faithful to Him. And so all of this is part of our salvation. This active obedience, it's in His very name. You will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And so Jesus preaches and teaches and shows this gospel. And He he gets others who are also witnesses to help in this mission. And they're from all walks of life. In fact, we'll eventually get to um, chapter 9 where we learn about Matthew, who's called from being a tax collector. Not a very popular job, even today. So, this is what we see in this text. But we see that not only his own personal act of obedience and his discipleship, but thirdly, we see in the last few verses, miracles. And we'll see a lot of these. So look with me at verses 23 through 25. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. See, the call here is, come and follow me, that he's given, right? Now, I want you to notice this phrase in verse 25. Large crowds. We'll eventually see that just a large crowd doesn't mean that everyone there is really following him. But we're told that large crowds were following him. Now, of course, if you hear someone healing all, all people's problems, you're going to want to come and check it out. And we'll see this next week in, in the beginning of chapter 5, actually. It says this, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So we see this distinction between these large crowds. But... He also goes on to teach later in one of his parables that there's going to be wheat, there's going to be tares, and it's our responsibility, no matter what size the crowd is, no matter who the people are sitting in the pews or listening on the radio or Facebook, to proclaim this gospel, to call people to repent and believe in the gospel because he has lived a life of sinless perfection that can be put on your account by faith and repentance. He has died a substitutionary death that we're going to testify to in the Lord's Supper soon. And He has been raised, proving that the Father accepted His sacrifice alone as acceptable and as sufficient to forgive our sins and grant us eternal life, not just in the new heaven and earth, but that we start to feel and experience even now. He rose from the, dead, from the dead three days after his death, and 40 days after that, he ascended back to the right hand from whence he came and where he will come from again for all who are looking to him in faith. So as we keep that in mind, these miracles were not the ultimate goal in and of themselves. These are what you could consider kingdom signs, evidences 
that this is the Christ, that he possesses the power to create countless universes, just like all things were made through him in the beginning. He has compassion in his heart. He cares about those suffering. And only he can deal with our heart issue, the ultimate problem of sin. And he will, as he promised, make all things new at one, one unknown point in the future so that we have a world that we can live in which is free from sin and all of its effects, free from suffering, free from death. All this can be found through faith and repentance in Christ. So at this time, I'd like to invite us to close in prayer as we think about this and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. And I will go down in a moment and